You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Naked Scientist. Time for the Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. We take your calls on 011-883-0702 with your questions, your science-related questions. The WhatsApp line 072-7021-702. And then, of course, you can find us on Twitter at M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons. Dr. Chris, how are you? Uh, not too bad. Good to middling, I suppose. How about yourself? I am good, and you owe me an answer on the Chinese. Well, I haven't had any luck, so <laughs> I thought I would, I'd stay quiet and, and I'll let you carry on taking the rip out of my accent. <laughs> you, beware, I might do it back. And you can, te- you can tell me, because you obviously know more about this so than the, I do. So the funniest thing is, of, uh, I saw a young British lady who was responding saying, we as the Brits will take insults from the world. We've got a lot to be ashamed of and embarrassed of. But what we, we will not do is take insults from Americans on food, looking at some <laughs> of the things that you do, because the world right now is making fun of us calling this Chinese when we know we've added potatoes and curry sauce and a million things that don't make it authentic Chinese. But you, as Americans, insulting us when it comes to food, we will never accept. And I thought that was absolutely hilarious that this entire debate was happening around it being racist, whether referring to getting Chinese takeout, saying, I'm going to get a Chinese. And then they'd say, oh, that's so racist. They're like, no, we just don't need to specify that is it's a takeout. We know as the Brits that when we say I'm getting a, a Chinese or a whatever else, we don't need to say take out. Yeah, I think the whole world has been set to stupid dial up to 11 plus for far too long. And I don't know what's wrong with people, really. They're mad, aren't they? Where, where did the world's sense of humour go? Where did people's sense of common sense go? And why are those people prowling around looking to take offence wherever there is none, where they can score a cheap point or two off Twitter? I mean, I've been a victim of this over COVID when um, someone who I happen to know his ethnicity, he's an Asian chap who's followed the Naked Scientist for years and years and years. And he asked me a question because I was one of the first people in the COVID pandemic to point out that a very significant number of people who were not white uh, during the COVID pandemic in the UK and in America were becoming victims of severe disease compared mm. to white people. And I said, uh, I think this needs investigating. There's something going on. Have you noticed the excess number of mortalities, morbidities, hospitalizations among certain social sectors? And this chap asked me why that was. And, and I said, well, we don't know if this is a genetic thing or whether it's a social thing. And I used a certain form of words, which he said, well, thank you. I understood that completely and was mm. very grateful. Some random white person who's a do-gooder, I think they call them white knights on Twitter, <laughs> saw this Sorry, and then decided to try and lampoon me saying I was some kind of racist. When, oh. when, and they tried to make me delete all the Twitter thing. It went absolutely nuts and Twitter melted down. And I, and they were trying desperately to cancel me. And they were saying, why don't you delete this tweet? So, because if I delete it, it looks like I've done something wrong. All I've done is highlight the fact that there is an issue and we don't know whether this is a genetic thing 
or whether it's something to do with the social circumstances. And, the, and, and there was, it was a completely innocuous thing, what I wrote. <laughs> There's nothing in that. But if you took it out of context yes. and quoted just a tiny excerpt from it, you could then try and say, oh, Chris is trying to be racist. Mm. No, Chris was actually doing completely the opposite. But what it does is it creates this minefield, this verbal minefield, this linguistic minefield, and people are treading through eggshells. And they give and, away, and you right? answered when, this last, uh, was it last week where the listener asked if race is a social construct, then why do we say some ethnicities or individuals are more prone to getting certain diseases? Yeah. Yes. But also, if, 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 uh, if it's not a racism thing, why do we even use the word racist? But you can tell that people, are, you know when politicians sail into what they know are stormy waters, if you listen to the cadence of them being interviewed or giving a speech or something, the minute they get onto the subject of something that might get them called out on Twitter, watch the number of ums and ahs go up. Mm, <laughs> it I've just goes you. through the roof. Because you know you. that they, they are literally treading on eggshells thinking any word could be turned back on me and, and misquoted and I'm, and I'm going to tread very cautiously because they know that no one gets a second chance. And it's like um, yeah. one of the new uh, college heads at the University of Cambridge. He was appointed to one of the colleges recently and um, she's she very successful. She used to run a broadcasting organisation um, and, and she said, I haven't moved all my things into the Master's Lodge. And I said, why not? And she says, oh, in this day and age, mate, one wrong word and you're out. <laughs> I think I can understand. She was keeping a plan B. My goodness. Well, Dr. Chris Smith, let's get to the science questions. And we've got Bongani in Tembisa. Bongani, go ahead. Hi, can I have a doctor from how do you date the universe like they say it's dating for seven years or so? How did that number come about? All right. Brilliant doctor. question. Mm. Brilliant question. And we had no idea to start with how old the universe was, uh, how big the universe was, etc. Until Hubble came along and used some data from pictures that people were taking and of a particular kind of star that the, the brightness varies and goes up and down. And they were able to use those as a sign of how far away things were. So then they worked out how big the universe must be. And then they worked out how fast the universe was inflating or expanding based on those sorts of numbers. And then they looked at other forms of light, which have been stretching out as they pass through the universe. And as light passes through an expanding universe, light rays spread out. And what that means is that if you know, because different chemical elements in the light have different colours, in other words, different elements make and absorb radiation at different frequencies, if you look at uh, a known frequency like hydrogen, and you say, well, where are the colours corresponding to hydrogen? Oh, look, they've been stretched right out. They're no longer where they should be. They're this much stretched out you know how much the universe has grown and stretched in the time that that's taken. And therefore, you can get some idea of how long that light's been traveling to do that. And so you can begin to, to work out roughly how big the universe now is compared to what it was, and therefore how much it must have expanded. And this is how we get uh, an age of about 13.8 billion years for the evolution of the universe. And it started off as this small point of extremely high energy, extreme density, and expanded uh, way faster than the speed of light to start with, making the universe, in fractions of a second, huge entity. And then it slowed down, 
but has continued to grow and as time goes on it's speeding up again so the universe is getting bigger so it's blowing up faster as time goes on but that's basically how we can wind time back to work out roughly how how the universe must have started and when 13.8 billion years ago give or take thank you so much bongani for that question teddy in northcliffe go ahead hi um um hi and um scientists i just wanted to know as a buddhist is there any scientific evidence that exists for rebirth. Rebirth, you know, as, as in, as in, like previous lives, or like born yeah, again type like, of rebirth. Know, Buddhists, we believe that you know your consciousness or a remainder of that will re-enter into a new body. With yes. That yes. Birth. And I was wondering, is there any scientific evidence of this? Mm, thank you so much, Teddy in Northcliffe. And I think that's a great question, Doctor. I've seen the dockies of small children relaying full detailed stories about things that seem like past life experiences, things that they were just never exposed to in their lives, to which what's being explained is that must have been experienced from their past life. Is there scientific evidence for this? Unfortunately, while it's a good story, there's no evidence to support it. This doesn't happen. You sound and so sad it, about the, it. The reason it doesn't happen <laughs> is because if you think about how the brain works, the brain is an assemblage of neurons, uh, about 100 billion of them. They make thousands of connections to each other and between themselves, and they store information and our learned experience and our lived experience as we go through life in a pattern of interfaces or synapses, to give them their proper name, between those nerve cells. So in other words, there are neural networks where the pattern of connections stores information almost like a series of switches on and off and those change and remodel as you go through life that's how you learn and they unstitch themselves from each other that's how you forget but your pattern of brain activity is unique to you and since your brain develops from one single fertilized egg as an embryo and grows to 37 trillion adult human cells of which 100 billion are nerve cells in your brain by the time you're fully developed then there is no mechanism by which you can imbue that developing brain with the pattern of connections of a past life. The, the mechanism couldn't happen. We, we're not aware of any way in which that could happen. And when we see stories where people say, well, uh, they said this and it seemed to resonate with... The thing is, what you don't hear is the millions and millions of times when someone said something that was utter gobbledygook or had no relevance whatsoever. So you tend to notice the things that are uh, coincidentally apparently very accurate. In other words, you attach significance to a coincidence. And that's why, as you've said before, faith and science should not be taught in the same classroom. No, they're both very important things, <laughs> yes. and they mean different things to different people, but they're two incompatible languages, really, because what's important spiritually is, except in the realms of psychology where one considers the impact on people's health and so on and their well-being and their social standing, those two things are two different languages that don't really mix and shouldn't mix because one would be set against the other. But I, I don't think they're incompatible with each other because... The, the bigger question is, well, why do we have this innate desire to believe in a higher being mm. or a higher existence or an afterlife? What is it about our brains and the way they work and the way they're wired up and put together that make us want to subscribe to these kind of things without someone saying, because if I said to you, I've got the winning lottery numbers this week, you wouldn't give me a million bucks for them. You would say, I don't believe you. Mm. And uh, on the other hand, if I produced the winning lottery numbers, you would say, oh, thank you. Um, I'm very impressed with that. I would 
happily come to somebody or people will happily go to to a place of worship and they'll believe what's written in a book that might be thousands of years old mm. but there's no evidence to support the messages there in other words it's, it's it's beholden upon us to say well spiritually i'm going to embrace these messages and i'm going to live by these codes because i i choose to believe them but i'm not going to mm. subject them to the same evidence base that i would for other aspects of my life so religion and spirituality is a very special part of how we operate and it's not a scientific part of how we operate Oh, definitely. I think that was very well explained. Nuktula in Rosebank. Hi. Hi, Rile. Mm, go ahead. I want to know, um, what causes worms in the body? Worms, like tapeworms and things like that. Yes. Girl. Oh, this is where it gets really icky. Oh, I don't want to hear <laughs> and, this um, one. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'll start with a little story that happened to me on Friday. And my colleague who I share an office with, just got off the telephone to a patient who had been wandering around on a beach in South America and had then presented back here in the UK with a very itchy foot. And she'd say, taken a photo of her itchy foot and sent it to my infectious diseases colleague who showed it to me and said, what about this? Is this a lovely example of cutaneous larva migrans? And this is something you occasionally run into if you walk around bare feet and you tread in sand where dogs and cats have pooed because there are certain types of hookworm which when the dog poos them out or the cat poos them out, they live as a, a thing, almost like a, a primed gun ready to go off in the soil or in the sand. And when a new animal comes along, they are provoked into drilling a hole in the skin and getting in through the body. Now, in the right sort of host, like a dog and a cat, they make their way up to the through the bloodstream, through the lungs, mature in the lungs, they get coughed up and swallowed, they go into the gut, they latch on, they drink blood, they shed eggs. That's, that's their life cycle. In us, they can't do that, this particular group of worms, so they burrow in through the skin, but then they can't get any further, so they just writhe around in the skin, and you get this worm-like pattern in the skin. And they, because they're irritating all of your chemical defences and releasing loads of histamine, they itch to death and you get a very itchy part of your body where this is happening. And the, the worm eventually dies, but you can give it treatment to get rid of it. But it's, a, it's a, a fascinating thing to see, but not very pleasant for the person thinking, I've got a worm living in my skin. But worms are parasites, basically. They are exactly parasites. And they rely on another body to feed them. And they can either be... Uh, in, in certain tissues and parts of the body, or they can live in your guts. The ones that live in your guts, in the case of those worms I just mentioned in dogs and cats, are a human equivalent, it's called Nicator americanus, is one sample, example. They latch onto the wall of your intestine, they drink your blood, and that feeds the worm. And the worm then sheds eggs from the intestine, which and, and they, they go into the environment, and then they turn into larvae, which can repeat the process somewhere else. Other forms of worms that live in your gut eat what you do, so they share your dinner with you. Those are the things like the roundworms and the tapeworms. And those ones can become very, very numerous, and because they're competing with you for calories, people who are infested with them can lose a lot of weight, because uh, unlike the hookworms, which drink your blood and can make you anemic, the tapeworms and those roundworms, they can actually make you calorie deficient, and they can lead to you uh, not, not having enough body mass. People become quite thin and wasted if they have a high worm burden. Those ones, you poo out the worms' uh, segments, and they get into the environment laden with eggs, and you come along, and if you've got poor hygiene or whatever, you pick up those eggs, and once they're in your mouth, they get primed by the passage through the intestine, and they hatch into new adult worms. And then there's one other 
fairly icky form of, uh, of worm, which uh, lives in the large bowel, and at night time, it knows it's night time, and it crawls down to your bum. It comes out from your bum, and it lays its eggs all around your bottom, and they make the skin there very itchy. So you're very prone to scratch and go scratch, scratch, scratch. And what do you do? You get the worm eggs under your fingernails. What do you do with your fingernails if you're not particularly hygienic? You bite them. And so you reinfest yourself, and so your worm burden can go up and up and up. And these worms can live in you for, for more than a decade, believe it or not. So many people, most most kids have had some worms at some point. Most of us shed them by the time we get to adulthood, but some don't, and some have quite a substantial burden of worms, which may help them with weight control. Who knows? I love you, Dr. Christmas, but I've never been more happy for this segment to end. I'm so itchy from everything you said. Dr. Christmas, we're back next week.